Oh, I was raised in a barn. I should close the door on the way out. Welcome to Charlotte Mason Says. I'm John Schindel, here with my wife, Crystal. Join us as we read and discuss the home education series. Okay, so before we get started, we've got a couple things we want to talk about. Dun, dun, dun. One, we're nearing our 50th episode, so that's super exciting. This one is episode 49. The only problem is that episode 50 will be on a reading episode. Oh. So we didn't time that very well. I blame episode 13, which was our uh, oops, everything's dead episode. <laughs> that's that was all you... of 55 minutes. That's right. That's when your computer died. Yeah, so we finally came to a decision, or Crystal came to a decision, and I shrugged and went, hey, it sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> because we were about 50-50 be- between doing episode, episode, between doing volume one, home education, and doing volume five, formation of character. Five or six. It's five. Six is towards the philosophy of education. Right. Five. But the last part of this book is kind of dragging on John and I. It's hard to get through. It just, is. just not that it's good, not good, but just that we've been harping on the same thing for a while now, and it's getting repetitive. So instead of doing more philosophy, we're going to do home education. Get into the hows of what her she's talking about. We are. And one of the goals of us moving into Volume 1 is going to be to, to see how, as I learn about what, her, what the practical side of educating little children is in her mind, how she does that in light of what her philosophy is. Or how she tells us to educate children in light of what her philosophy is. Mm-hmm. Now that we've spent a lot of time learning about why we should educate and what are the big picture things, what is the nitty gritty and how do we apply everything we've learned so far? Yep. So it'll be interesting diving into it because I've not read volume one yet. So this will be a first time for me. <laughs> so it'll be good. Chapter 22, A Catechism of Educational Theory. So this is a weird chapter. It's very different. Very, very different. So much different that I went ahead and reformatted this entire chapter and printed it out because it's all over the place and strange. So if you listened to the reading that we did, you'll notice that I was a part of the reading, which is highly Irregular. Very irregular, <clears throat> given we've now gone 22 readings, and I've only been a part of one of them. Highly, highly irregular. It's like only 5%. Did I do my math right? <laughs> Maths are hard, and I'm an engineer. I don't do math. So this is formatted in the... As a catechism. It's formatted as a catechism. As a question and answer on a specific topic. It is. And as such, it wasn't format it wasn't formatted that way in the book. It was kind of that way. It was kind of each paragraph was either a question or an answer. But sometimes the question came at the end of a paragraph and sometimes the question was a new paragraph and it was weird. So Crystal put it in a Word document and separated it by heading and has two columns. The column on the left is the question and the column on the right is the answer. And we will have a link to this document in the show notes. Yeah. So definitely grab this and take a look at it and read through it this way. It helped me get a better feel for this. And it also makes it feel like a conversation between two people, which hopefully is what the reading felt like. At least halfway through, I noticed I was very wooden until halfway through when I started actually (laughs) reading instead of just monotonously saying words. It was kind of funny. It happens. You had to loosen up. So, chapter 22, A Catechism of Educational Theory. 
And she has a mission statement in this first part. And I really like this mission statement. Which do you think is the mission statement? Well. Don't okay. say the entire thing. It's the, the four. She gives four points. Is that not the mission statement? No. It, well, she gives four statements of belief. The mission statement is to direct and assist the evolution of character is the chief office of education. That's what I saw as the mission statement. The other three lead up to that. Disposition is nature. Character is an achievement. Anything you can advance in is in character. Therefore. Okay. Yeah, I, I see that. To direct and assist the evolution of character is the chief office of education. Yeah, it makes sense. So as homeschoolers, as parents, as teachers, you know, all, a lot of the time we're told, you know, come up with a, a mission statement for your homeschool or for your classroom. This is it. This is this is everything. Yeah. To direct and assist the evolution of character. Well, and everything she's talked about so far comes back to character, mm-hmm. seemingly. Everything, everything derives from character. Everything draws from character. Your habits are due to your character. Mm-hmm. So as educators, our goal, and I wrote this even, I wrote this further down, but our goal as educators is, is not to end up with children who know things, who are able to answer test questions. And we talked about that a couple chapters ago when we talked about test taking and test giving and how that's ruining the educational systems. It's That's not our goal as educators. Our goal is to have children who love to learn, who will spend their lifetime learning. Yeah, it is to have a lifetime of learning and, and bettering yourself, the evolution of character towards a, a more perfect person. Mm-hmm. So in order to clear the ground better by throwing a little of the we'll throw a little of the teaching of the union in and she systematically works through how she got to these points and how they Mm -hmm. relate to education so the first section is character and disposition to read more about this go to chapter three that was one thing i didn't do is i didn't go back and double check which chapters went with which points here i used the find function on the computer that's not a bad way to do it it worked really well. Oh, sure it did, <laughs> actually. So, yeah, back in Chapter 3, she talks about something. About character. This is where she talks about parents owing their children a second birth. A second birth. And uh, if you go further, page 22 has disposition and character. Talking about heredity and character making. His character, the efflorescence of the man, wherein the fruit of his life is a preparing. The is, iger, is original disposition, modified, directed, expanded by education, by circumstances, later by self-control and self-culture. So then it talks about a little bit more about how to how to build character. Well, and she talks she talks about that here in the in her uh, in her catechism because the next question or the first question is what is character. The next question is how does conduct itself originate the result or residuum of conduct is what character right. is so character is the result or residuum of conduct and so she asks how does conduct originate and it's by our habitual modes of thought and we basically get that from our ancestors but we can change it by marrying into different families and by education and education is how you can change So then she goes into habits. First, she goes into the history of a habit. And this goes to principle number seven and chapter number nine. Where she talks a lot about Thomas Akempis and his quote, one custom overcometh another. And the fact that to dispel a bad habit, you instill a good habit. Mm -hmm. And, And she asks, well, how can you correct a habit? By introducing the contrary line of thought, which will lead to contrary action. And it must be done well, because the stimulus of the new idea must be applied until it is, so to speak, at home in the brain and arises involuntarily. So we want to form good habits in our children, and to do that, it can't be 
it can't be something that, that they have to think about. As adults, a, a good habit for us can't be something that we have to think about every time. Mm-hmm. We have to train ourselves to do it naturally without thinking. And she goes on to, you know, what is you know, not thinking? What is this involuntary thought? And for more information on that, go read chapter 15. You're just full of answers today. I know. <laughs> the search function's amazing. <laughs> and it's interesting. Chapter 15 was the her basically her review and critique of the Salvation Army. Yeah. I was thinking that while I was reading this. Because in that one, she talks about how do you correct bad habits that are so bad mm-hmm. that they completely overtake one's life. She has the whole three things against us and three things for us. And habits falls in both of those categories. Yeah. And this is where she actually talks about unconscious cerebration. I remember trying to speak that word. (laughs) She says here, the question is, why is it important? Why Why is unconscious cerebration important to the educator? And she answers, because most of our actions spring from thoughts of which we are not conscious or which are involuntary. So our actions spring forth from things that we things in our brain that we can't control in the moment. Mm-hmm. You go as you're accustomed to go. So in our children, we need to train their involuntary thoughts to lead their actions where their actions need to go. Mm-hmm. And she says, how how do you how do you change an unconscious cerebration? Well, you introduce a new idea. And the pleasure of that new idea, the pleasure of getting, the pleasure of giving pleasure with these good things. So instead of, you know, the greedy child running upon cakes and sweetmeats, they get introduced to the pleasure of something good for them. Mm -hmm. Not just the fact that they have to because, well, that's good for them, but you should want to because this is good. Not just good for you, but because it is good. So, is this greedy child capable of receiving such ideas? Well, to move back a step, if you look at the, it's almost a religion at this point, but the religion of fitness in America right now, and and in other countries too, but in America it's definitely a thing. The religion of fitness is such that you train yourself such that you love those things which are good for you, eating good foods, being healthy, working out, and you train yourself to not like those things that are not good for you. Alcohol, sweets. Being lazy. Being lazy. You, you take someone who has been indoctrinated in the culture and religion of fitness and you have them eat pasta and sit around all day not doing anything and they're going to be miserable. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's a thing you can totally indoctrinate yourself in. If you can change your own psychology to move away from the standard American diet and move towards what is a natural and healthy diet. Mm-hmm. So that's a that's an example for adults that you can definitely do that with adults. Because there are a lot of people who, who enter into the, the cult of fitness having never been fit before in their lives. But there are a lot of people who move out of that. So anyway, that, that, that idea hit me as we were talking about this, that that's a clear example of adults making this change in their own lives. Well, it comes back to the question, can this happen? And this is where you go into springs of action, Mm -hmm. which you can go back to chapter 20 and read about. Where, what motivates you? What is your primary desire? And this is where, back in chapter 20, she talked about the desires of power, of wealth, of society, of excelling, Mm -hmm. of knowledge, of esteem, are primary springs of action in every human being. Touch any one of them in savage or savant, and you cannot fail of a response. And here in, in chapter 22... She gives the example of benevolence or the desire of benefiting others as a spring of action. 
she also gives the the antithesis of that. She says that malevolence can also be a driving motivator. Because if the spring of benevolence is not touched, the 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 questioner is saying, well, if every every person has all of these good things and you touch a responsive spring to bring out good and noble conduct, how can people do wrong? How can people do amiss? And they says, well, there's also the opposite for all of these. Yeah, because the good feelings have their opposite bad feelings. Spring, springs which also await a touch. Mm-hmm. And we come to what I found was our first action point on our mission statement. What is the duty of the educator? Because if our mission is to direct and assist the evolution of character, how do we do that? We make ourselves acquainted with the springs of action in a human being and touch them with such wisdom, tenderness, and moderation that the child is insensibly led into the habits of the good life. Mm-hmm. I got nothing. She's pretty clear there. Uh, yeah. It's interesting that it's insensibly led. It's not that you're you're bludgeoning or you're moralizing or Mm-mm. beating the beating a dead horse over and over and mm-hmm. over. You, you're you're insensibly leading them to that conclusion on their right. own because you learn what the springs of action are and how to how to gently touch them, mm-hmm. how to gently stir those initial ideas in them. That's very true. So we then move on to the habits of the good life and what are those habits? And she gives a nice list here. Diligence, reverence, gentleness, truthfulness, promptness, neatness, courtesy. And then she sums it up. She says, in fact, the virtues and graces which belong to persons who have been well brought up. So basically she just defined what well brought up meant. All of those things. Yeah. And for habits, I'm sure you there's scattered all through this book, but specifically chapter 9 and chapter 11. But yeah, habits are scattered all throughout this book. Well, it's it's one of the two main things that she touches on. And mm-hmm. we, we talked about that last week, or I guess last discussion, when we talked about the scheme of educational theory, where there's two heads. One is the formation of habits, and one is the presentation of ideas. So... She talks about habits so much because it is so absolutely fundamental and basic right. to her theory. Because without habits, nothing works. Right. So the interesting thing I thought here is the, the questions asked, what common error do people make about the formation of habits? And she says they allow lapses. They train a child to shut the door after him 20 times and allow him to leave it open the 21st. Yeah. And so as educators, we are to be diligent with our children. We are to be diligent with following through on those good habits. And oh my goodness, it takes a long time. It takes a long time, especially with little children. It takes a lot of reminding. Even as they get older, we've we've taught our children from a very young age to always shut the door behind them when they go outside. Always. Whether it's a screen door or the glass door. Always close the door. And what do they forget to do when they go outside? Close the door. Still. So it's a thing that we we still work with them on. And I don't know, maybe we need to maybe we need to give them a better idea. Or maybe at some point that idea will strike them and go, Oh, I was raised in a barn. I should close the door on the way out. <laughs> well, the other one that, that came to me, we finished Farmer Boy. I don't know, a couple weeks ago. And he went to the fair and went to the fair and went to the fair like three or four days in a row. But at the end, he said he was tired of it and he was very glad that they were going to be staying home again. (laughs) And he was he it was a lot of fun and it was very exciting. But he was ready for it to be done. And it, it got me thinking about how much. We as a society thrive or or subsist on excitement and entertainment Mm -hmm. where work in, in the good sense of work, work should be our main focus. Yeah. 
and and we fill the void of contentment with a lot of things that are not productive work. Yes. We fill that void with entertainment. So we need to break that cycle. We do. And and it starts the way everything else does. It starts with us and it starts with our family. It does. It does. And and honestly as I've been in the workforce and looking at hiring people, one of the main things we look at when we hire a new person is what is their work ethic? What are they what are they able to do when they get in the office? Are they willing to sit at their desk and do work? Or do they need to constantly be getting up and going and doing things? Are they social butterflies that that just need to go and talk to everyone all the time? Hmm. And there's something to be said for just sit and do your work, at least in my line of work. And so thinking about raising our children, we look at this age of adolescence. We talked about it in our last discussion that adolescence is kind of a modern thing. And this this whole during middle school and high school and college, you, you don't really work. You just go to school and that's your job. And then you come home and you play. I read that they're introducing a second stage in between childhood and adulthood. Uh-huh. Uh, emerging adults. Yeah. Part of that is because, in in my opinion, which take it for what it's worth, it's my opinion, um, so probably not worth much, but in my opinion, a part of that is due to the fact that, one, we want meaningful work. And meaningful work is being taken up by people who are already doing their work. And people are living longer and working longer. And so there aren't jobs that are available through traditional means at this point. So we've got a whole generation of kids, people, adults, who are graduating from college with no real life skills and expecting to get a job. And there's nothing being handed to them. So they kind of go, well, I guess I'll just screw around. Yeah. And it's not to say that there aren't jobs available for people of that age. It's a lot of times that people of that age aren't willing to sit down and do the job and find the job. I, I don't know. That's that's my thought. And again, broad, broad, categori- broad uh, categorization here, but... It's interesting to see the trends. Yeah. Uh, as as far as what people are willing to do and want to do. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's clearly a broad generalization. I mean, we're people of that generation, and I was working even before I graduated from college. The people I work with are the same way. Those who are my age were were the antithesis of of our generation. We're the other side of the coin. So, no, millennials are not all all bad. <laughs> they just they just all get a bad rap because we're destroying the napkin industry. Oh, napkins now. Oh, it's been napkins for a while. Oh, I okay. I uh, associate that, assign that, attribute. I I attribute that to the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles movie. Why is that? So the scene is that the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are in April O'Neil's apartment. And she gets them pizza because the turtles love pizza. Because pizza. Because pizza and they're turtles. And sure. And so, you know, they're eating pizza and April, you know, she's like, she pulls out the napkins. Anyone want napkins? And all four of the turtles look at her and go, what for? And then she throws the napkins. Out of frustration. That's why our generation is killing napkins. <laughs> yep. Anyhow. So if you're ever hanging out with me or my two brothers and you ask us if we need napkins and we say, what for? Now you know where where that <laughs> reference is from. And we'll look at you like you're an idiot if you look at us like we're idiots. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see what else Charlotte Mason has to say. Specifically about napkins. <clears throat> Habits. Um, thoughts following in sequence. 
Chapter 15 also has some information about this. Initial thoughts. Chapter 6 leads some insight into this and how once you have an initial thought, your reason sets off a thought chain. Chain reaction. And you have no choice but to follow it to a logical conclusion. Mm-hmm. So is this right? And she says, well, no, it's not an infallible guide. And these 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 conclusions are also the product of your culture mm-hmm. and generations of culture. And she gives a an example of a guide in South America seeing something and says a lion. And he's like, wait, where's the lion? No, he saw the condors circling up above and knew that they were staying away from something and that something had to be a lion. So the sight of the birds was full assurance of a lion as it was would be to the person seeing a lion. Where in South America is this the happening? Pampas. Probably like a puma or a, a cougar. Okay. Mountain lion. Because I was thinking lion like African lion. Clearly I'm I don't know. Correct, I didn't look up who Captain Head was. Reason. And again, is it infallible? No. It, if you have a wrong initial idea, you can prove it. You can prove it accurate. The, the child who's jealous will find 10 million reasons why he should be jealous. When you're looking for a specific type of car, you see that car everywhere on the road. Everybody else has that car. It, it's when you're thinking of that thing. That's all you think about. That's all you think about. That's all you can see. And the the questioner says, is there any historical proof of this startling theory that you put forward? She says, well, yes, it's everywhere. Specifically in the Bible, people are justified in doing that which is right in their own eyes, acting up to their lights or obeying the dictates of their reason. And that's that's all the way back at the flood. Yeah. And that can cause errors. And she she gives another example of a a mother whose cruel usage, abuse, had caused the death of her child. And she was morally exonerated in a court of justice because she acted from some mistaken sense of duty. I don't know what that case was, but that's a very dire case of an an in an inaccurate initial idea leading to death yeah leading to something that is very bad yeah and we still see that oh yes oh oh yes we see that i mean we see that specific thing still you, you have to look for it because people don't like reporting on it now but but you can find it. We see it also across the globe. People doing terribly heinous things to either their children, to the opposite sex, to all kinds of different, for all kinds of different reasons that are heinous. But when you stop and think about it, you you can, you can lead it back to a logical point. You can follow their train of thought. Yeah. Regardless of how bizarre or weird or wrong it is you you can follow that train yeah i mean you think about the the tradition of i believe it's chinese women to bind their feet so their feet stay tiny it's horrible it's heinous but it makes sense if you if you follow it back to their initial thought well and and the uh, she comes back to the absolute chief crime against the deity, the crucifixion of Christ. And she goes into that in detail in chapter six, where they, they crucified Christ because it was expedient that one man die for the people and that the whole nation perish not. Said most reasonably those patriotic leaders of the Jews. They also most reasonably said, um, after Christ was gone, um, They had arrested Peter a couple times and came to them and said, you know, hey, we don't don't teach in this name. Don't teach in the name of Jesus. Don't spread his gospel. And they said, we have to. We we follow God, not man. And 
God raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging on a tree. So when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and told them to take the men outside. And then he said, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For Cedius rose up, claimed to be somebody. About 400 guys joined him. He was killed. They dispersed, came to nothing. And then Judas the Galilean rose up and drew people away to him, and he perished, and those followed after him were scattered. In this case, I tell you, keep away from these men. Let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them, and you might even be found to be opposing God. So they took his advice. Again, reason. Mm-hmm. starting with a correct initial idea leads to them agreeing not to persecute what might be from God. The initial idea being that there will be a Messiah. He might have been the Messiah. Therefore, what do we do? Yeah. Not he clearly was not the Messiah. It, it was a let's wait and see how this plays out. Yeah. This was in Acts chapter five. That's one that I didn't know off the top of my head. I feel good. That I was, knew that one in you was a, That was a good one. That was a good one. So that was that was the initial idea, right? Mm-hmm. That was habits. The, We're still on habits. This was a big section. This was a very big section. It's almost as if habits are important. Ah, no. <clears throat> They're overrated. So then we move on to a short section. This is only five questions long. This is children should be taught self-knowledge. And for more information, go to chapter five. Full of answers today. <laughs> well, when she's giving us a summary, it <laughs> means she's talked about all these things before. Yeah, she absolutely has. None of the she she is not presenting any new information in this chapter. She's just presenting it in a very concise, clear manner. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't really have any thoughts for this section. A child should know what we understand that to acquaint a child with himself what he is as a human being is a great part of education to both know your limits and to know what you're capable of to know what is common to man and to know what is peculiar to you as an individual uh it it's it it gives you a framework and a basis from which to work yeah that makes sense and what's possible? I mean, you might read a book and you go, oh, my goodness, I didn't know that that could happen. Mm-hmm. And you get struck by a new idea. <laughs> you know, bring it all back to ideas. So, yeah, I don't have much. So then we move on to man as a free agent. Do you have a chapter for this one? So on the last page? Well, no, it's it goes into origin of ideas because she's it's uh, chapter four. Everything's chapter four, yeah, by the everything way. Everything is chapter four. But life sustained upon ideas and uh, spiritually conveyed and originate, and there is an origination of it. And, uh, oh, there was a principle for this, principle eight. The mind feeds on ideas. So I I thought, I always think this is interesting. The, The question is, how do ideas originate? And she says, they appear to be spiritual emanations from spiritual beings. Thus, one man conveys to another the idea, which is a very part of himself. And then she continues about how their how ideas are conveyed. She says, ideas may be conveyed through picture or printed page. Natural objects convey ideas. But perhaps the initial idea in this case may always be traced to another mind. And so the question that immediately follows that is, then every idea is from another human being. And she says, no. And here's the great recognition which the educator is called upon to make. God, the Holy Spirit, is himself the supreme educator of mankind. And I find that both fascinating and also dreadful and also comforting. Little uh, tidbit. The great recognition is actually a turning point in her life, which we will get to. In chapter 25. Well, now I'm curious. I know. I'm not curious enough to read ahead. 
I, I just I find it interesting that that yes, ideas come through men, but those ideas originally originate from God, mm-hmm. and that all ideas originally originate from God, and that there are no ideas under the sun that do not have their initial creation as a spiritual thought from the supreme being yeah. from Christ or from God. Yeah. I just I I thought that was good. And again, she supports it through scripture in Isaiah mm-hmm. and the plowman teaching being taught how to plow, which she has also brought up in the past. Mhm. Again, nothing new. <laughs> and we come here to what I see as the second action point in to your mission statement. So we have the mission statement of directing and assisting the evolution of character. The action point number one was to make yourself acquainted with the springs of action in a human being. Action point number two is to know your part is to place before the child a daily nourishment of ideas, to give a right initial idea in every study. Well, and I thought backing up a couple questions, the question is, what is the part of man? And she answers to choose the good and refuse the evil and to grow that in children. A part of that is to place before the child that daily nourishment of ideas. Okay. That but through, see, I'm saying as the duty of an educator. Yeah, no, I agree. Okay. <clears throat> I, I agree that that's absolutely the duty of the educator. But again, why is that the duty of the educator? It's to grow your child to be an adult who has the ability and the power to choose the good and refuse the evil. Mm-hmm. Not just because you want a smart kid. Or you want children who can answer all the questions. Character. Exactly. And what is a sign of good character? Someone who can choose to do what is right, even in the middle of the of a terrible circumstance. Mm-hmm. Because those are the stories that we all love to hear and read. Is the person who is is a person who is confronted with the the worst situation and yet continues to hold on to their values and continue to do what is right. Mm-hmm. I think of the movie The Gladiator, where Russell Crowe, the the gladiator, is a general in the Roman army during Marcus Aurelius's reign, towards the very end of it. And he's a general who's fighting up in Gaul, and he's leading the armies, but the emperor is about to die, and he appoints this general to be his successor, his heir. Well, he has a son, though, and the son isn't happy. So the son kills his dad, the son orders the general to be killed, and the general escapes because, well, he's Russell Crowe. <laughs> and otherwise there wouldn't be a movie because, well, that'd be the end of it. Uh, so so this guy gets picked up by a slave crew and he becomes a gladiator and he ends up fighting in the, in the fights in Rome that Marcus Aurelius' son famously had, the, lots, of, lots of fights and spectacle. And... As a gladiator, as a slave, he defies the emperor by doing what's right, by standing up for the true emperor of Rome, not this young upstart kid. Hmm. And so he defies a, a godlike being to do what's right. Hmm. It boils it down to, to what character is. Yeah. And the, the, regardless of that list that we had earlier of name some of the habits of a well-brought-up person. It goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. It goes. It it boils down to: Do you choose the good and refuse the evil? Well, and I think that's one of the reasons that reading stories for children is so important, because it gives them tangible examples of people of character who chose to do right or who chose to do wrong, and you see the the fallout from that. So I started reading a book of folk tales from around the world to the kids and the one today was about a mother who put her blood sweat and tears into to weaving this um, brocade and it got whisked away by the wind to the fairies because they wanted to copy it the instant she was done with it son number one went to go retrieve it somebody the old lady who was basically guarding the way said well you have to go through fire you have to go through ice and you have to get your teeth knocked out to give them to the horse, the stone horse, so that the horse can take you there. And son number one 
refused. And so he took the gold that the woman gave her and ran off to the city. Son number two refused, took the gold and ran off to the city. Son number three did what was good, did what was right, went through the trials, came back with it. And it was a a picture of this amazing land and property. And it came to life for them. And so they were wealthy and happy and had this great place. And then the other two brothers were ba- became beggars and went along and saw this amazing place. And they're like, oh, we can go beg here. And they're like, wait, that's our mother and our brother. <laughs> and they slunk away. <laughs> oh. But, but, but seeing that story of, you know, when you do good, when you do right, when you, when you do the hard things, mm-hmm. that, that's where true contentment lies. That's where the, that's where the good life is. Yeah. So. So, yeah, stories, stories, especially of people of high moral character are hugely important for children. I also like stories where the main characters make bad choices and they have to suffer and deal with the fallout from that. Mm. One of my favorite series is, and we've mentioned it several times now, is The Wheel of Time. And in that series, several characters make several wrong decisions over and over again. And they don't communicate with each other. They don't communicate with each other, which is the theme of the book, that men and women should talk to each other and work together because then life actually works pretty darn well when you actually talk to each other about your feelings and your thoughts and your emotions and uh, there's there's one there's one character who throughout the book is always espousing how he doesn't want to take part in anything he wants to sit in taverns and drink beer and dandle the ladies on his knee and, and gamble and smoke and do all of the fun things but whenever whenever the rubber hits the road whenever he's presented with a choice of run away or or do what you're supposed to do he always chooses to do what he's supposed to do and he dies a couple times. He finds himself in terrible situations that he has to claw his way out of because he makes the right choice every time. Yeah. And it hurts him every time. And he hates himself for it every time. But he knows he's going to do it and he'll do it again. Yeah. He ends the book alive without an eye. He died twice. He died twice. He, he, he ends the book alive. He died twice, but he, he's still alive at the end. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. So, yeah, uh, books are important, uh, be they historical fiction or fiction or fantastical fiction or science fiction. Or fairy tales. Or fairy tales. Books are important. And part of that. Ideas are important. Yeah. I was going to say part of that is exactly what Charlotte Mason is talking about here. So we have our mission statement. We have two action points, and this is a summary of the functions of education, which are principles numbers five through eight, which is also her, like, the Charlotte Mason way, the method capstone. capstone. Education is a discipline. Sorry. Education is an atmosphere, a discipline, a life. And so... The principles five through eight go into each of those. Chapter four goes into that. We look at principles number eight and 12 as far as this generous curriculum of study. Um, the last sentence of chapter 21. And this is this is her capstone of, of what her philosophy is. Yeah. The discipline of good habits. It's a life nourished on ideas. It's an atmosphere emanating from parents. Of the that of the ideas which rule their lives. And so parents should have good ideas ruling their life. They should give them lessons to give them the opportunity to have good habits, in addition to conveying those initial ideas. So this this is this is it. This is this is education. It is. There's been, when well, we talked last chapter about how it kind of was a capstone, pretty, pretty good summary of a Charlotte Mason education. And, and I think this one's an even better one. Uh, it follows a logical train of thought in a very concise format. I think it's better in some ways and it's worse in others. 
this one's one that that again if you were to if you were to try and introduce someone to charlotte mason you could start here but someone who who hasn't read everything behind this i could see having a rough time getting through this list of questions because she doesn't she doesn't expound on anything which is where you know having gone through this and thrown out which chapters to go read it makes sense yeah it does but yeah this is this is absolutely a great great overview of what charlotte mason's philosophy of education is well and it it, it's so rich in itself that it can't be summarized by a simple chapter no it can't but we need it to be in order to have our elevators pitch have have our little 30 second clip of mm-hmm. what can, we can tell somebody because we can't tell them you know go read six massive <laughs> volumes in victorian english that's not going to happen easily well in this i mean to to me the last two chapters this one and the one before it seem to be the presentation that you give at a homeschooling conference where you have a 50-minute slot to talk about Charlotte Mason. And you take 30 minutes of that to do a presentation and 20 minutes to take questions. And this is your presentation. Your outline. You basically just read this chapter. Ooh, now I have an idea. Right? <laughs> I mean, this is this is the outline of what that, that discussion is, what that presentation is, is. Here is Charlotte Mason in a nutshell. If this, then that. It's a very logical step-by-step. Well, I think you have to go even a step back and say this is the philosophy of Charlotte Mason in a nutshell. Uh, true. This isn't this Because is this has method. nothing to do with her house. No. Until the very end where she says, give them a generous curriculum of studies. And that's where you would take this. Uh, so maybe, so let me correct myself. This would be the first 25 minutes. And then you take 10 minutes and go through in an even quicker nutshell, what some of her ideas of the how of education are. Yeah. But in my opinion, what sells me most on Charlotte Mason is that her initial ideas are such that the education flows from them. And flows into life. And flows into life. And so if you're going to try and sell someone on a Charlotte Mason education, then you start with her theory. Mm Mm-hmm. And you end with the little snippets of, oh, yeah, and she has lots of great ways of doing this. That's true. So any last thoughts before we finish? Well, even to tag off of that, that's why we started with parents and children. Mm -hmm. That's why we chose to begin with not the um, not the how Mm -hmm. to to both ground ourselves in the why and to figure out what what is motivating these various things that we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And that's also why we're moving on to the how with our next book, going to home education. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's why I, I think, personally, I think that that this this book is is so is so very important to anyone who is trying to use a Charlotte Mason method. Because the, the why is so important when you're doing something so radically different than the educational methods that are espoused in our current day and age. Whether it be public school, Christian school, Catholic school. Uh, you're not looking at the means. You're looking at the, the method. And the method in all of those is typically not what the method is proposed here. Exactly. And since it's so alien and so foreign... We as educators can't lean back on our own experience of being educated because this this wasn't my experience. No, not mine. I, and I would I would guess that most of most of the folks listening, this wasn't their experience unless you're one of those rare souls who got to be raised in a Charlotte Mason home or a home that that espoused a lot of these these ideas and beliefs about education. And if that's the case, great. But I'm guessing you're one of the few. And, and that's why it's so exciting that we're in the midst of a Charlotte Mason revolution, if yeah. you will, a revival, where, where nowadays we have so many things available to us and so many um, 
methods. The the original pink books got reprinted in the 80s and brought to America in the 80s. And so mm-hmm. that was that was a very small sampling of people who started it then. And so their kids are now either graduated or graduating and now it's bleeding into a second generation mm-hmm. and more people are hearing about it and more people are seeing it. So we have the benefit of being the, the second generation, the second wave, if you will, because now all of the people who did it in in our age are helping the next generation. Right. And so there are those second generation Charlotte Mason people. They're out there. Mm-hmm. And kudos to you if you're one of them. That and means, for doing this before the internet, right? I don't, <laughs> I don't, I don't know, know how I, I don't know how life existed before, before the internet. Before the internet, before podcasts, before people like us who sit down and talk at microphones and screens at each other for hours. I know on how end. that. I know. I remember before that, but before the internet. Yeah, I don't know. Anyways, we're set. We're so millennials. So, <laughs> so I I want to finish with this last question and answer because I think I think they're so rich. The question is, what duty lies upon parents and others who regard education thus seriously as a lever by which means of character may be elevated almost indefinitely? And she answers, because it is incumbent upon them to make conscientious endeavors to further all means used to spread the views they hold, believing that there is such progress in character and virtue possible to the redeemed human race as has not yet been realized or even imagined. Education is an atmosphere, a discipline, a life. Thank you for listening. Join the conversation with us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter.